The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. The sermon text for today is 2 Samuel 17. 2 Samuel 17, if you'd like to go ahead and be turning there. Let's read the word of the Lord together. It says this. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king. And I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged, like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits, or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you, from Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him and all the men with him no one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, And thus and so have I counseled. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, Do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom, So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Bahurim, who had a well in his courtyard. 
and they went down into it. And then the woman took and spread a covering over the, mouth, the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They have gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose, and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Then David came to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of Nahash, from, Rahab, from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Galadite, from Roglim, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey, and curds, and sheep, and cheese from the herd, for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, The people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are often fearful. As we look at the world around us, as we look at all the things going on here and there, on our TV sets, on our computer screens, in every medium that we see in today's world, we are fearful, scared even, at what's going on. We confess that that fear is sinful. And we pray for the encouragement, for the courage, for the strength to trust that your plans for us, for our families, for all those we know and love, for our church, your plans are good. And that your plans will be accomplished. So we pray now that as we read your word, that we would grow in trust, in courage, in strength. We pray that as we open your word and read this story here, that you would speak to us, convict us where we have perhaps been sinfully fearful, convict us where we have lacked trust, Convict us where our joy in you has been lacking. 
and bring us closer to Christ, we pray, through the reading and teaching and study of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. According to a 2020 Pew Research poll, 90% of Americans identified as Christian in 1972. In 2020, that number was down to 64%. From 90% to 64% in just 50 years, a little less than 50 years. People identifying as having no religious affiliation at all went from 5%, these would be called the nuns in today's culture, went from 5% in 1972 to 30% in 2020, having no religious affiliation whatsoever. The projection by the same Pew Research poll was that if, if things continued at the same rate, that's a big if, there's all kinds of things that could change, but if things continued at the same rate, people identifying as Christian would be a mere 35% by 2070. 35%. Many that are raised in churches or kids have grown up and they've left the home and the radical cultural agendas that are pushed in colleges and universities and workforces and various other places around the country, literally every movie, every TV show that you watch, undermining the faith that they were taught when they were younger, has led to a walking away of the faith. 21% leave, according to one study, leave Christianity as a result of the cultural agendas that are being taught to them after they leave home. So it's very clear that at least in America, and probably around the world too, but it, very much so in America, a form of philosophical persecution has taken root in our hearts and minds, many people in this country, and they have proven pretty effective at leading people astray into false doctrine and false belief. But not just philosophical persecution, that may be what rules the day here, but Around the world, we see physical persecution also on the rise. In 2021, 360 million Christians last year were estimated to be living in countries where the persecution of Christians was significant. Roughly 5,600, that's 5,600 Christians were murdered in 2021. More than 6,000 were detained or imprisoned. Another 4,000 plus were kidnapped. In addition, more than 5,000 churches and other religious facilities were destroyed around the world. When you look at all of that, it's not a great sales pitch for Christianity, is it? Come, join us. 
360 million of us will live under persecuted, persecuting state. 5,600 murdered. Thousands more kidnapped. Thousands more detained and imprisoned. Come to Christ. It would seem, if you just look at the statistics, it would seem that Christianity is under assault philosophically and physically. I think you can reasonably conclude that. It would also seem that in some sense, at least on the stat sheet, it's working. Many Christians are driven underground around the world and many led away from the faith in our country. In our passage this morning, we've been and really over the last few weeks, we've been exploring and seeing various ways in which God's sovereignty plays out in the life of David as he's driven out into exile, taking his throne, leaving his throne and being driven out into the wilderness because Absalom, his son, is coming in to take over. David is facing exile from the Holy Land and Over the last few weeks, we've seen the author being clear to point out where God's sovereign hand has been at work. Two weeks ago, we saw God's sovereignty over the sinful choices of your past. As we saw that in David, as he's walking out of town and being confronted over and over by the sinful choices that he's made. Last week, we saw God's sovereignty over the seemingly chaotic moments of life, where even when things are the worst that they could possibly ever be, God still maintains sovereign control. And this week, we're going to see yet again God's sovereignty play out, specifically called out in the text in front of us, God's sovereignty over the success of His own kingdom. Now, admittedly, on the surface, Everything looks like it's collapsing. David is out. He's going to be driven further away. Absalom is in. And now Absalom is looking for a way to decisively end it all. But then the question comes for us in our day. As we look at the world around us, questions start to arise in our own mind. When is God going to do something about this. I can't be the only one that's thought that. As you've turned on the TV, you've read news articles, or you've seen the kind of lunacy that's going on in our culture, surely the thought has at one point or another occurred to you, when's God going to do something about this? Surely this can't go on much longer. Well, this passage gives us Two assurances that I think are really important for us to realize. Whether it's for the future, concerning the future of the church, as we see not only these cultural narratives beginning to spin up in our culture and people beginning to leave the faith because of these cultural narratives, and we start to think to ourselves like, how much further can we go? How much further can, is, is, is the church just going to completely collapse in America altogether? So whether it's for the future of the faith in our country, or perhaps it's even for our own personal struggles, 
where we might be tempted to doubt God's design because of the way our life has played out that we didn't think it would. We're going to see two assurances in this passage. First, the first assurance is that God's sovereign work is often mysterious to us. God's sovereign work, the way His plan fleshes itself out, the way His hand works, is often mysterious to us. And we see that in this plan that is sort of advised at first to Absalom. Absalom has come into the the land and David has been driven out and he turns to his chief counselor. This was a big win for Absalom as he came in. Ahithophel came over to his side. Okay, that that was a big, a big win, a big feather in Absalom's cap when Ahithophel switched teams and came over to his side because Ahithophel's word was like God's word in the land as we saw last week. If Ahithophel said it, it was coming true. There's no doubt about it. He is a wise man. And so Absalom naturally turns to Ahithophel and says, well, now what? What do we do now? We're in, we're in the land and David's driven out. What do we do now? And so Ahithophel looks at Absalom and he advises him this way, starting in verse 1. Read with me. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he, is very, while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king. And I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes to home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. So the advice from Ahithophel to Absalom is relatively straightforward. It's pretty simple. It's, it's really threefold. First, Absalom has to trust Ahithophel. It's part 1A. He has to trust Ahithophel. Part B of the first one is to pursue David tonight. So the goal is Ahithophel is going to Take a a, a few thousand men, and he's going to go right now and pursue David tonight while he is weary, while he's on the run, while he's nervous, while he doesn't know what's going to happen, under the cover of darkness, and we are going to attack him. Second part, when we attack him, all of his allies who are with him, who are right now kind of confused, obviously it's dark, they're, they're still on the run, while they're in the midst of confusion... They're going to be consumed by 12,000 men, and they're going to flee. And so what will be left is only David. That's the key part. Only David will be left. We'll go straight for him, and we'll kill just him. We don't want to kill anybody else. These are our brothers and our sisters. We just want to take out David. That's part two. Part three is that all of the people who are with David will then repent of their sins and will return to their king Absalom and will serve him forever. It sounds like a pretty straightforward plan and seems like, on the surface, it would probably work. David, we know, is running. He is depending on some servant spies that he sent into the, into the land to give him some information. 
And if Ahithophel mounts an army right now, David is not ready for that kind of attack, nor does it give his spies time to get word to him of what's going to happen. So he'll be caught totally by surprise, and he'll be overwhelmed by the amount of force, which we know his force is not that many, and so it won't work out well for him. It sounds good, and it even says in verse 4, the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom, and it seemed right in all the eyes of the elders of Israel. So what's to question? Let's pull the trigger on this thing and let's do it. But for whatever reason, Absalom turns to Hushai for advice. For no apparent reason, at least at first in the text, Absalom turns to Hushai to ask him for advice, even though the advice of Ahithophel seemed right. Look at verse 7. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there has been another slaughter among the people to follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go into battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into the city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we'll, we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. So, he, remember, Hushai is actually on David's team. Hushai is David's good friend, and he's come back to pretend to serve Absalom, and he's serving as a spy in Absalom's council. Now, why Absalom turns to Hushai is at this point in the text unclear. But what we know is that Hushai goes straight for the jugular. He's not intimidated by Ahithophel. He says at the very beginning, Ahithophel's advice is not good, and he lays out four reasons why Ahithophel's advice is not good. First, your father's men are mighty. We're going to learn more about David's mighty men later, but David has with him a group of people that are essentially like what we would know in our culture as SEAL Team 6. These guys are bad to the bone and can take down armies with very few resources, okay? So these guys are experts in war. Second, he says, David, your father, is mad. You've taken, you're like, like, like 
walking into a bear's den and taking mama bear's cubs. And when mama bear gets mad, trust me, as anyone who's married and has kids knows, when mama bear ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? So David is like a mama bear that's been robbed of her cubs in the field. Third, David is expert in war. He has been there. He has done that. He's been around the block several times. He knows how to fight. He's proven that time and again. Need we go back to all the, the stories of David's past? Things that we have only heard about. Him fighting off lions in the wilderness. Him, things that we have, we have seen in the text. Him fighting De, uh, Goliath in the field of battle when no one else would. He is an expert in war. And then finally... If you suffer even the slightest amount of defeat to David, who has the reputation of being this kind of expert in war, if you suffer even that much of a defeat, even the strongest men who are with you are going to cower in fear and they're going to run for their lives. And you're going to be left with no army whatsoever. You think it's 12,000, but, but it will be zero by the time David's done with you. So it sounds like a pretty good counter-argument. So Hushai offers several other things that would be alternatives to the advice that Ahithophel gives. And it's these. First, we need to wait. Okay, Let's wait until we can get word from, he says, from Dan to Beersheba. That is, as far north in the land as we could possibly go, all the way down to as far south of the, in the land as we can possibly go. Let's gather everyone. So that we have a force that is multi multiplied much greater than what Ahithophel wants to take. We want a massive army of everyone in the land, as many as we can possibly get. Not only that, second, you need to go in battle yourself. Don't let Ahithophel go and take all the glory for himself. No, no, no. You need to go with this impressive army to demonstrate that all of Israel is with you, and not with David, you need to overwhelm him and show Absalom is the king of the land. Third, we need to cover him completely. Okay, it's fine. Ahithophel wants to take 12,000 men. What happens if David runs into a city? What happens if there's some city out there east that he's made friends with that harbors him in? What are you going to do then? You think 12,000 men is going to be enough to take down an entire city? And David's men? No. We need to go with such an impressive force that we cover him like dew covers the ground, meaning we're going to completely smother him. Everywhere you look, every blade of grass of his army is going to be covered with dew. Finally, if that happens, where he runs into the city, and there's a city that harbors him, we're going to take ropes and we're going to pull that city down, brick by brick, and we'll throw every single one of them in the valley so that David will be uncovered and exposed. Now, we know why Hushai is giving this advice. Several things. It gives David, it gives him an opportunity to get word to David what's going to happen. Because now we're going to wait so that we can gather an army together. So it buys time, and time is of the essence. He also wants to give David time to get away, to run, to get into high ground or advantageous territory for David. The bottom line is, 
in any and every circumstance, if David is to survive, he needs time and he needs information. And so we're going to be able to get the information to him and it's going to stall for time. Now, why on earth would Absalom look at Hushai's advice and take it? It makes absolutely no sense. Give David more time? You say he's an expert in war and you want to give him more time? Do you know what experts in war do with more time? They win battles. That's what they do. Okay, but for whatever reason, Absalom follows Hushai's advice. And we're told what that reason is in verse 14. Look with me. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. There is absolutely no discernible reason other than this for Absalom to take the advice of Hushai over Ahithophel's counsel or to doubt Ahithophel's counsel. Even verse 4 tells us as much. He was wise and everybody liked his advice. Further, Hushai is a friend of David, and when Absalom meets him, he knows he's a friend of David. He even tells him he's a friend of David. What, you're just going to give up on your friend, David, out in the wilderness like this? And Hushai swears his allegiance to Absalom, and he has not been tested at all. There's no way Absalom can know whether or not Hushai is actually a spy. No way. But the Lord has in one way or another, blinded Absalom to the counsel of Ahithophel, exalted Hushai's counsel in the ears and the eyes of Absalom, and has caused his heart to pursue Hushai's counsel over Ahithophel's counsel. So God's hand of sovereignty is often a mystery. How does it work? What do you think David's thinking right now as he's out there in the wilderness? Obviously, we saw that he trusts in the Lord, but he has no idea how any of this is going to happen. What do you think Hushai is thinking when he's asked to give counsel or advice to Absalom? Who knows? They're throwing this out there, not knowing if any of this is going to work. And what is behind the scenes actually exalting the word of Hushai in the eyes and ears of Absalom? But it is God's sovereign hand that is working under the scenes. There's, this is the reason why it's important for us to pay attention to these statements in Scripture. We get them all the time of God actively working behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes. There's a temptation, I think, on the part of us Christians to look around the world with all the stats that I read up at the beginning, all the things that you see on TV, all the various things that are going on in our culture. There's a temptation to look upon the world with despair. And there seems to be a lot of good reason to. And we might even present those good reasons. We might even counsel other Christians with those reasons. Have you ever heard someone say to you, man, 
typically it's an older person. I'm not against older people. I'm just saying, typically it is. They'll say, I would not want to raise kids in this day and age. You ever heard that? That's pagan. That's not Christian at all. In fact, Christianity is the opposite. Have lots of kids and raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. There is a reason why in our worship services we want kids in here. We know there's lots more movement when there are children in here. We know there's lots more noise when kids are in here. No offense, children. I'm not trying to offend you. You're great. That's fine, right? But we know that is going to happen, that there's going to be no more noise, and, and sometimes there's going to be distractions, and people are going to look across the room and things like that. We get that, and we get every time there's preaching, there's a lot of bathroom trips. We understand that that's going to be the case. We know that. Why do we want children in the worship auditorium? Because worship is a language that must be taught to your children. They have to watch you worship to understand that it is important to you. And so for Christians, multiplication, having lots of children and sending them out into the world is not a danger or a fear. It's our mission field. These are arrows in your quiver that you're raising up in the fear and admonition of the Lord and then you're firing them into the culture that is diametrically opposed to the cross of Christ. It's a mission for us as a church, as Christians. But there's a temptation for us to look at the culture and to despair over all the things that we see. But what we find reiterated to us time and again in the Scriptures is that Christ's church has to trust that God's Word is true and that His sovereign hand is at work even when you cannot see it. Even in ways that you would never suspect. He, he reigns not only over the events of human history, but also over human future. So your trust in your raising of your children and teaching them and raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord is that you would send them out into a culture that is opposed to the cross of Christ, that they might share the gospel there and see people with hope who previously had none. But God's work behind the scenes is mysterious and Christians, this is written so that you will trust it and will know that even if I cannot see His hand at work, even in the most dire of circumstances, even if I cannot see what He's doing, I know that He is at work. Maybe one day, maybe one day, it's not a promise, but maybe one day, I will look back and I will get to see one or two things that He did. But you have to know and trust that there are billions of things that you will never see that He's done and is doing. We cannot, when we cannot see His work, we know that He is still at work. Proverbs 
tells us the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. No, the king decided to do that. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. He seems to like, God does, seems to like to put himself behind the eight ball. Have you ever noticed that? He seems to like to put his own plan in a place that you'll never look. Well, God wouldn't possibly let this happen because then how could the church ever grow? God wouldn't want that to happen because then how could XYZ ever take place? That actually seems to be where God likes to work. You ever notice that? It's always in the most unlikely of circumstances. And Paul is going to tell us in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 29, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He does it on purpose. And his reason for doing things that seem nonsensical at times, or not the way you would do it, is precisely to confound the wise. To make you appear foolish by saying, God would never do it that way. Christian, the simple point is you have no idea all the things that God is doing. Globally, across our nation, or even in your own life, you have absolutely no idea. The world seems dark. It seems growing darker. You might have personal issues, family issues, marriage issues, health issues, financial issues, but you have no idea how the Lord is going to use all of those things in your life to bring about good out of these situations, what He's doing in and through them. That doesn't mean that your cancer is going to result in healing. That doesn't mean that your poverty is all of a sudden going to turn to wealth. We don't preach a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. We don't believe that God is obligated to do it that way. What we do believe is that God's sovereign work is a mystery to us, that He is always accomplishing good for His children, and that one day I will understand the good that He has worked in my life because I'm His child. God's sovereign work is often a mystery to us. But now the author has made it clear in verse 14 that that's what God is up to. So then, the rest of the passage is filtered through that lens of God's sovereign hand at work. So the second assurance that we have in this passage is that the enemies of God's kingdom will ultimately fail. The enemies of God's kingdom will ultimately fail. There are two failures that are presented in this passage and then the scene is set for the third failure that's coming next week. But there's two failures at the end of this passage. First, Absalom's men fail to catch David's secret spy network. Look at verse 15. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders, and thus and so have I counseled. Now therefore sin quickly and tell David, Do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. 
Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell David, uh, tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Bahurim, who had a had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servant came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, they, are, they have gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. So this message, this scene that takes place is past, the, 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 the message from, uh, from Hushai is passed to Zadok and Abiathar, the, both of their sons. Their sons are Jonathan and Ahimaaz, and they are the two spies that are part of that network. So the word is going to get out to them. They're going to be the runners. They're going to go tell David what needs to be told. And so this uh, female servant is supposed to go tell them. So they are on their way out, and they're caught. They're seen, and uh, so now Absalom is going to be made aware that they're going, that there's this underground spy network, or that they're going to tell David exactly what's going to take place. And so the spies then fled, fled to this place called Baharim, which is just northeast of Jerusalem, and they, they hide in a well. Now, this story brings to mind, doesn't it, two other spies that famously were also hidden by a woman and concealed as the city was going to be taken down. But this time, the spies are trying to get out of the land instead of get into the land. You see that? Last week, the significance of that is that last week we saw, as David is walking out, literally his entire life flashes before his eyes. First, it's people that served him, then it's people that served Saul, and then his own son out in the wilderness of Hebron takes over the kingdom just like David did. So literally his life is walking backwards, in, going in reverse. Now, all of Israel's story is going in reverse. Before, it was two spies getting into the land, trying to spy out before they could conquer it. Now, it's two spies trying to get out of the land so that the king is not conquered, right? It is a reversal of everything that has taken place up to this point. But the failure is that they cannot actually capture the two spies. They go looking for him, for, for the two spies, but they are hidden and they are deceived and the the two men go, or the men go away, and the men, the two spies, crawl out of the well, well, and are set free to go successfully warn David, so that he is able to escape. So the first failure is their own failure to actually capture the spy network. God's not going to let that happen, as we're seeing God's sovereign hand work its way out. But the second failure is that Ahithophel fails to successfully overthrow God's king. So Ahithophel. Hearing what uh, Absalom is doing and that he's followed the advice of Hushai, goes back to his own house, puts all of his affairs in order, and kills himself. Now, why would he do that? Well, probably because he knows that this is the only way you can conquer David. And if you're not going to do this, 
David's going to conquer you. You're going to give him more time. He's going to win. What is he going to do when he walks back in the land? Does Ahithophel, who is no doubt an old man, we know he's a grandpa, does, he, does that mean that he wants to spend his life on the run like David was? Absolutely not. So he realizes what's going to happen when David comes back in the land. He's going to kill me. So he goes and he hangs himself. But you understand, this is an answer to David's prayer. 2 Samuel 15, verse 31. If you've got it there in your text, look back at it with me. 2 Samuel 15, 31. And it was told to David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. He prays. The Lord immediately in the next verse, after that, verse 32, sends Hushai to him. Now, one thing that I think should not go unnoticed What is David's response to the tragedy of his chief counsel betraying him? What's his first response? Oh, Lord, please. I wonder, I know it's common for us to look at our TVs with despair, to comment about society around us falling apart and lament with despair. But how often does it drive us to prayer? It's easy to lament. It's easy to gripe. It's easy to call your friends to the coffee shop and talk about whatever it is from politics on down. Talk about the degradation of society and the way culture is going and things like this that people have done for thousands of years now. But does it drive you to pray? Does it drive you to cry out, Lord, please? Are we a church? that's driven to despair or to prayer. It's something for us to consider. Absalom marches to his death in verse 24. He doesn't know it, but he's taking all his men and he's encamping on the other side of the river to try to capture David. Absalom has no idea that by God's hand he is destined to die for following Hushai's advice, but he's there. Meanwhile, David is secured and nourished by God's same hand. But, but here's the astonishing thing. I want you to see this in this passage. You see a couple of people coming to him. One in verse 27, his name is Shobi. Another is Makir, also in verse 27. And you look at that and you go, I have no idea who these people are or why the text is even mentioning these people to me. But you should... It should jog some memory, at least as you think about it for just a little bit. Shobi is the brother of Hanun. Remember, Hanun back in chapter 10 of 2 Samuel is the one who became king in place of his father, Nahash. And David sent emissaries to Hanun to say, hey, congratulations. Is there anything that we can do for you? 
and he was advised, you, David doesn't want to congratulate you. He wants to overthrow you. And so he took David's men and he shaved off half their beards and stripped them of their clothes and sent them back. Remember that? And so David sent an army after him and killed him. Well, Shobi is Hanun's brother. So now the second, young, the second oldest in the family is now the king. And what has David done but made a friend in Shobi? Hey, thanks for taking out my brother. So something ten chapters ago or, or many chapters ago that you didn't think would actually come back to pay David off is now coming to bless him in Shobi coming to him with all these uh, enrichments that he's providing David. Makir was uh, partial to Saul. Makir was actually the house that Mephibosheth was living in in chapter 9. And David called out amongst the house of Saul, is there anybody here that I can bless? And Mephibosheth was living in the house of Makir. So David takes Mephibosheth in. Mephibosheth thinks he's going to kill him. But instead he takes him to his table and he feeds him. And he says, you can live here and you can eat from my table forever. So no doubt, Makir has become a friend of David because of the treatment that he's given to Mephibosheth. So the blessing that David gave to the rest of the world some many chapters ago has now come back to... He's now reaping all the things that he sowed in previous chapters, in other words. Now, here's why this passage is tremendously important, I think, for us. Obviously, there is David beginning now to see the sovereign hand of God supplying his need. But it's particularly important for us because there's this scene in the Gospels when Jesus is talking to his disciples and he asks them this question. It's in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. He says, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, the answer that Peter gives to Jesus is the right one. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the response that Jesus gives to Peter is a promise. And with this promise, there's a lot of confusion on what Jesus says that goes on in many churches, and I'm not attempting to belittle that at all, but I've preached a lot through Matthew, and you can go back and find the sermon there. But what essentially the nuts and bolts of it is that Jesus makes a promise to Peter that the church is going to be built on this rock. What is the rock? The rock is a people who have the truth of Christ revealed to them by the Spirit of God. He is going to build His church upon people who confess rightly who Jesus is because their eyes have been opened by the Spirit of God to see and confess rightly who Jesus is. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
So, so here we've got this scenario set up where Christ is saying the kingdom of God is going to be established on the backs of men and women who with eyes opened by God and by His Spirit rightly confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah. I'm going to build my church on the backs of them. But then what is the promise? What's the promise that comes right after that? My church is going to be built on that. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Meaning that on the backs of those men and women, as they proclaim that gospel that they believe to the world around them, even though those people are trapped by the gates of hell and have no hope of eternal life, there are going to be men and women who burst forth from the gates because their eyes have been opened to see the truth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So very simply, when the church proclaims the gospel, the good news of Christ, when they teach the word of God to people, there will be people come to salvation. Jesus makes a promise. He's laying out for his disciples how the kingdom of God is going to be established. Now, think back to our passage. What is David? Who is David? David is the first of a long line of kings that's going to culminate in Christ. He's the tip of the spear of the kingdom that God is thrusting into the world. He's the first of many. He's not perfect. And after him are going to come a host of kings, of sons that are not perfect, that cannot accomplish salvation for God's people. But from that line is going to come one who can. When Jesus sits down on the ground in the incarnation, when He takes on the flesh of a child and grows up and becomes the Savior of humanity, He is the one King that everybody is looking to. He lives perfectly because you and I cannot. And then He dies the death that we deserve. He takes the wrath of God on His own shoulders and offers to you and I salvation. This is why Peter can rightly confess, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's ultimately the one that accomplishes salvation for all God's people. So what we're seeing here is God's sovereign ability to preserve His kingdom. Right now, it's in its infancy with David. But ultimately, the promise that Jesus gives to Peter that I'm going to build my church on this rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against it is the same thing that we're seeing play out in God's sovereign hand working behind the scenes to preserve David. It's the same promise carried through. Now Jesus is saying, look, church, if you proclaim the Word, if you teach truth, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. Absalom's coup is small potatoes compared to what Christ is going to face. And for a moment, when he dies for those three days, doesn't it seem like God's plan is a mystery? Boy, God has really put himself behind the eight ball now. Doesn't it seem that God's enemies have ultimately won? Of course it does. 
But what we learn from the resurrection of Christ is that God's sovereign plan is ultimately a mystery to a lot of us. And that when He reveals it, it comes from a place you never thought it would. The death of His Son. That ultimately God's enemies will be defeated. So church, there, there's plenty of reasons. As we look at the TV screens and we read news articles and all those kinds of things, there's plenty of reasons to despair. There's plenty of things to look at to be discouraged by. But what you can see from the beginning of the Old Testament all the way through to the time of Christ and even to our day now, that God is sovereignly at work. He always has been and He always will be. There is no reason that we have. If we're looking at a global perspective, there's no reason to trust His sovereignty. You have no idea what He's going to do. You have no idea what He can do in the hearts of people who hear the Gospel. So for you, church, be bold. For what reason would we have to be silent? Why, amongst our friend groups and our peers, why would we ever want to silence the Word of God? Why would we ever want to be silent about the Gospel? Why would we ever want to refuse telling people the truth from God's Word? Ultimately, we do it because we're afraid of what they might say. We're afraid of what they might do, maybe. We're afraid they might reject us, castigate us, throw us aside, maybe make fun of us, maybe think we're less than intelligent. Who cares? Who cares? What do we have to lose? The answer, as revealed in God's Word, is nothing. You actually have everything to gain. This church is fantastic. About giving, about hospitality, about welcoming people, about telling their friends about Christ, and all I'm saying is, keep going. Do it more. And if they reject you, so be it. But don't silence the Word of God because you have no idea what it will do, even to the person that seems the most lost. But personally, we can apply that to our own lives too. Even when things seem the most chaotic, even when we're tempted to question God's plan more than anything, we have every reason to trust. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for all the things that you do, for all the things, that, the ways that you work that we, we have no idea about, that we never see. We ask for your forgiveness, for our fear, and we pray that you give us the boldness to trust. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.